Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the quadraphonic edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion in New York, and we're going to call this the quadraphonic, I don't know, the hip-to-be-square-something quad-related. Quadraphenia. Because you'll be hearing four topics instead of our usual three. We are really pushing the boat out this week. It's a heavy news week, you probably noticed, and so we couldn't fit it all in with just three topics. So, we're going to talk about the currency crisis in Russia and the impact that rising interest rates and a weak ruble are having on oil markets, Russian consumers, and everything, really, even the U.S. stock market. Then, Congress has rolled back a provision of the Dodd-Frank financial reforms. You may have heard of the swaps push-out and the big internal fight within the Democratic Party. We'll talk about that. And, of course, we are going to talk about the interview. Because everyone's talking about the interview, and it's a great story. So we're going to talk about that and Cuba, because that's a huge story, too. We've just got too much to talk about this week, and so I'm very happy that we have our regular guests. Uh, Kathy O'Neill is the data scientist and the blogger at mathbabe.org. Hi, Felix. <laughs> she, she's feeling sultry <laughs> today. As always. And um, we also have Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Wiseman. Hello, Felix. Hello, Jordan. And the quick explainer for those of you who, like Jordan, are millennials and born after... 1974, quadraphonic sound was an early form of what is now known as surround sound. Oh. Now you, now, you see? <laughs> Jordan, you've learned something. And I have to put in a little disclaimer that today's show was not recorded in quadraphonic sound. I apologize that we could not get anyone from Pink Floyd to record today's podcast. Maybe next week for the special Christmas edition, we will get in all remaining members of Pink Floyd. That would be amazing. That would be I bet, that would be the best edition of Slate Money. I bet we could do a fundraiser to get their going rate. <laughs> if we can get it for Doctors Without Borders, <laughs> I'm sure we could just offer up a match. Money! 
any of you listeners out there know, know any of the surviving members of Pink Floyd, do, do give them a ring and say, Oi, slate money, they want you. Anyway, Jordan, talk, talk to us about Russia. So, it's been a rough week. As uh, everyone knows, uh, at this point, Russia started off the week in a little bit of a currency crisis. Uh, the value of the ruble started plunging against the dollar, um, and it was is now recovered a bit and stabilized slightly. But it's, it's lost about half its value since, I believe, June. Um, it's in a very bad place. The ruble is, is done even worse than the oil price. It's actually done even worse than Bitcoin. It's done worse than Ukraine's currency. The hryvnia. Yeah, the hryvnia. The country that Russia invaded, its currency has fared slightly better than the ruble. I mean, it's it's truly uh, astounding. Why uh, is this, Jordan? Well, why why is the ruble done so badly? So there there are two store there are two big stories here, right? There's sort of a, a big emerging market story, and then there's the specific Russia story. So let's let's start with the Russia story, which is it's really about the fact that Russia is stuck. It's got plummeting oil prices it has to deal with. And its economy just runs off oil. About a third of its exports come from crude oil, not including gas, just crude oil. And then at the same time, it has these Western sanctions that are in place because of its adventures in Ukraine and Crimea. Um, it could probably survive one or the other. But Okay, so is this a sort of catastrophe theory thing? Because I believe that it's been a while since mm-hmm. Russia invaded the Ukraine. And I mean, the, the sanctions are nothing new. And indeed, the falling oil price is nothing new. Is there just like some point around $65 a barrel where suddenly everything just goes to shit for I, well, Russia? There is sort of a point where it all goes to shit, in, you know, for lack of a better term. The problem is that oil, you know, oil has been declining, and that's sapping revenues out of the whole economy. Okay, At the same time, Russia has a lot of external debt to pay off. Well, one of the theories, and a lot of that is denominated in dollars. They've been borrowing from abroad for all sorts of different reasons. But when reasons. you say Russia, it's not the government. It's, it's the, the government and companies, both. And the companies are sometimes majority owned by the government, so it's all sort of connected. Um, they have debts they need to pay off, and they certainly can't let the state oil company fail. One of the theories for why there was this giant sell-off earlier in the week was that there may or may not have been this backroom deal, essentially, where the, the central bank was kind of bailing out Rosneft, the state-owned oil company. The point is, as their oil revenues shrank, they are going to run into more and more of these problems where they have debts they have to figure out how to pay, and people are going to panic. So this is the 1998 Asia crisis slash Russia crisis all over again. Now, you were about 12 when that happened. but Yeah, I think I was. <laughs> Actually, yeah. But those of us who were you know, covering it at the time remember it quite clearly. And I mean, in, in a way, it's this kind of rerun of both what happened in Korea where and, and a lot of the other sort of Far Eastern countries where you had a bunch of private sector companies with dollar-denominated debts and a crumbling currency with the really devastating part of 1998, which was the Russian default. Now, I don't think anyone is expecting Russia, the sovereign, to default this time. No, I don't think that's... I, I don't think anyone's expecting that right now. And they do... Let's say they do have foreign currency reserves. They have, a, they have about $400 billion dollars of yeah. foreign currency reserves. So it's not like they're short of... Yeah, there's some, there's some debate about how much of that is actually usable, um, but for, for various reasons. But the, the problem is that they also have to deal with lots of different fires. They have to deal with their, their debts that they have to pay off. They have to deal with a big budget deficit at the same time. Uh, they have to deal with defending their currency. And there's only so far that all those foreign currency reserves can stretch. So uh, w- what I wanted to say, and, and I'm learning a lot from you guys, and I, I, I don't remember that crisis um, in 1998 either. But what I've noticed is, you know, having worked at a hedge fund, like, this is the kind of thing that hedge funds cannot deal with. This is politics, right? Every now and then, 
um, markets affect politics, but other times politics affect markets. And what we're seeing right now is market roiling because of all the geo, you know geopolitical um, politics going on. And like, and it started with um, Saudi Arabia, and um, there's all sorts of theories about why crude oil has been allowed to get cheap like it has. But usually those theories are politics based. No, I think it's. I, I will push back on this one. I think I think this is simple markets reacting to the state of the world. I, I mean, yes, of course, the state of the world always includes a certain amount of politics, but the big macro hedge funds spend a lot of time looking at the geopolitics of the world and trying to work out who's going to do what and why. And, you know, does it make sense for Saudi Arabia to keep on pumping lots of oil because A, it needs the revenues and B, if the oil price falls enough, then maybe that means that the um, American frackers will throw up their hands in surrender and then go away and leave Saudi to its monopoly. That That's all true. But even so, I mean, the people I talk to who are actually trading are surprised by this. Sure. I mean, because it, it's a massive move. And they actually don't think it's in Saudi Arabia's interest. Like, personally, maybe, but not their partners in, in, in the cartel. But, but I mean, what's, what's fascinating to me, maybe, Jordan, you can fill us in on this one, is that... As the Russia story has been hitting the headlines and the ruble has been collapsing, no one, well, PIMCO has a bunch of exposure to Russia, but very few other people yeah. have exposure to Russia. But what we've seen is a contagion, is, is the technical term. And it really is a technical term. I, I actually have something to say. It comes back to the, what I was saying at the very beginning about the, the big picture story about emerging markets, which is I think over the year we've kind of realized that they are not going to be this source of perpetual growth, that there are big problems in them. And so the more, you know, the more they're roiled, the more, you know, the, the investment world in general is going to be kind of just off kilter. I mean, that, that's, that's my, my interpretation of it. I, I so might wait, not be- Russia has imploded and the oil export is obviously doing badly. Yeah, we, what else is going I on? Mean, we started the year with an emerging market crisis in, uh, in Turkey. Essentially, they were dealing with their dollar-denominated debts coming back to roost. Um, there's been this sense that, you know, the Fed has been withdrawing QE, and that means a lot of, they've been taking the punch bowl away mostly from emerging markets, where a lot of that money was getting invested by American banks. So I think it's, it's not just this week. It's We've sort of seen volatility throughout the year. So but volatility is way higher this week than it has. I mean, I've been kind of surprised at how low volatility has been over the course of this year. I just well, I just want to throw in that I looked just before we started this podcast at the last year in the market, and it pretty much looks like a pretty consistent trend with every now and then bumps down and then back up. So it's, it's right. just this last week hasn't been that big a deal compared to a few other I mean, times I, this week. For this me, year. I thought I, I thought that the big story this year for the American markets is mostly you know, people trying to guess what the Fed's going to do. I mean, that, that to me is, you know, this week, the, the Dow jumped, had its best day in three years, right after Janet Yellen got up there and said, we're going to be patient about ra- raising interest rates. And I just want to say one other thing about markets is that nobody knows anything about markets. Like, I remember when I was, uh, you know, still kind of new at the hedge fund and on, on January 1st, 2008, I wasn't actually working on that day, but maybe it was December 31st when I was, um, I asked people, like, how, where's the market going to be in a year? at the end of 2008. And nobody would answer that. And they were like, the best guess is it's going to be exactly where it is now. And in fact, it was down 33% because it was 2008. So I'm just saying, like, you know, we don't really know what's going to happen in the future. We also sometimes don't even know what's already happened. I'm not asking anyone to tell me what's going to happen in the future. I'm just asking people to explain what's happened in the past. It's also hard. What do you think? So I'm curious, though, Felix, what do you think is the the answer there? So my theory is is partly what Kathy said, which Mm -hmm. is that in the grand scheme of things, Mm -hmm. it's very easy to get overexcited about intraday moves in the US stock market. And if you just zoom out a little bit, 
they're not as big as they might seem if you're if you're following day to day moves. And frankly, you shouldn't be following day to day moves. And then the other thing is that you do get these sort of spirals. Where, as I say, like you, in Russia, you had this combination of the sanctions and the oil price. Either one it could cope with, but put them together, and it's almost there's almost no end to where things go. And then that sets off a bunch of other dominoes. You get a flight to quality trade. You get the Swiss National Bank t- making interest rates negative. Mm-hmm. You get a bunch of investors withdrawing their money from high-yield bond funds because high-yield bond funds have invested in Russia for the yield pickup. The high-yield bond funds can't sell their Russian exposure because there's no liquidity there at all. So they have to sell their high-yield debt instead, which is otherwise quite safe, but they need the liquidity. So the high-yield debt drops. The price of high-yield debt goes down. That brings the price of all other credit down. It brings stocks down because stocks are a function of funding costs. And it, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of interrelationships and linkages where if you get a big sort of chaotic event in somewhere like Russia, which is a small economy as far as the global economy is concerned, it can ripple out. It rippled out massively in 1998. The Russian default was unexpected and caused major crisis. It was the first big global financial crisis. And what we saw this week was in no way as bad as 1998. But it does show how interrelated all markets still are. But anyway, we are going to continue on to an even more exciting subject, which is which is swaps push out. Trust me, we're going to make this one interesting <laughs> and, um, and short. Kathy, tell yes. us about swaps. Okay. Well, so there's two real issues here. And first, I'm going to talk about why we're talking about it. On Friday, in order to pass the spending bill, they stuffed this um, rollback of part of Dodd-Frank into it at the very last minute. And when I say they, we actually don't know who did it. So um, that's a, that's the second topic. The first topic is what is the policy change? And it actually goes back more than a year to October 2013. The New York Times had this amazing article where they found the smoking gun that Citigroup lobbyists had actually written the policy. They had actually written, they just inserted what the Citigroup lobbyists had had written down. They inserted it into um, legislation, which actually passed the House but never got voted on the Senate. And what it said was, hey, you know that part of Dodd-Frank where um, we're supposed to not trade risky derivatives in FDIC-insured banks? Well, um, we can, turns out. At least we can trade swaps in FDI-insured banks. And so I I don't want to go too much further into that, but the idea is that... um, after after the financial crisis, Dodd-Frank was like, hey, we shouldn't really let government-backed um, entities be trading these risky derivatives. So we want them to be forced to remove those kinds of trades from their FDIC part, like Citibank, which is the chartered bank inside Citigroup. We want to remove it from Citibank and put it in some subsidiary. And you might ask, like, why do they even have to like formally remove this part of Dodd-Frank? Because we still have too big to fail, right? We still have an informal government backing. And the cynical but you answer... Can't, you can't legislate an end to too big to fail. Too big to fail is just a fact of the world. It's not something you can pass a law and it comes to an end. And I think this is one of my problems with a lot of the rhetoric surrounding Dodd-Frank is people saying, well, that was useless because we still have too big to fail. I'm like, well, of course we still have too big to fail, but at least you can try and make the world better. Oh, agreed. Agreed. I'm not saying that. But I just want to make the point that the reason Citigroup actually wanted this formally to be removed from Dodd-Frank is because... When they trade derivatives in a a government-backed FDIC-insured part of their bank, 
then they get better credit rating and, and cheaper prices. So they actually make more money um, trading those derivatives. Well, I mean, it's, it's a little bit more complicated than that because swaps are all fully collateralized. And so it's not like the credit rating of the company in which you're doing the trading is that important because it's all the, the, the credit is mostly a function of you don't need to even worry about the credit because there's a, a, it's fully collateralized at all times overnight. But when push comes to shove, if there's a crisis, then your counterparties start caring about your, your credit rating. I, I think that the big picture reason a lot of, a lot of people on the left are worried about this isn't, isn't so much the specific rule and whether it, it itself unto itself was so important for financial reform. It's, you know, Matt Iglesias put it, it's a directional thing. It's okay. They they've gotten rid of one piece of Dodd Frank. They've rolled it back successfully. Now they can go and focus on the next piece they want rolled back. It's just part of the slow process of eroding Dodd Frank. Well, that- uh, yeah, and thank you. You're bringing me straight to my second point, which is if you if you just got bored just now talking about derivatives and you don't know what a swap is, just close your eyes and like make that all go away. Think of it as a black box that nobody understands. It's a piece of paper. Um, the the point is the politics around it was that. Um, that we don't know who put that piece of paper into the cromnibus. We nobody will admit to doing it, Republican or Democrat. Um, and n- there's a reason for that because Citigroup lobbyists wrote it and they wanted it in. And Elizabeth Warren had this amazing Senate floor speech on Friday evening, last Friday, and she just talked about how like this is a political move of power by Citigroup. She basically framed it in a beautiful way where you have Republicans, you have Democrats, and you have Citigroup. And Citigroup is actually the m- the most powerful of the three groups in in Washington. And that they're basically holding the federal budget hostage by putting this into the spending bill and not like you will not get funded unless this goes through. I, I will say um, it was interesting to see how upset everyone was at the idea that lobbyists for Citigroup had just written the bill and gotten it into the legislation. Lobbying firms advertise that. I think I've mentioned this on the show yeah. before. I mean, that is a service that they will kind of privately go to their clients and say, we do this all the time. This is our track record. You can like look at our, like, look how good we are at slipping this text in. This is a really high profile example of it, which I mean, I, I'm not necessarily glad it happened, but I am glad there is a high profile example. It's fresh yes. in everyone's mind. But, it, you know, I'm just, uh, last word on it. I, I it, it makes me really want a way of of having sort of more transparency and when they build these bills. I want at least one um, politician to say, to like have to put their name on something that goes into a, like a large spending bill like this. And we don't have that. That was the last word from Kathy O'Neill. We move on to topic number three, which is the interview. Look at this. Kim Jong-un wants to do an interview with Dave Skylark? He's a fan. Look at him. If that ain't a real story, what is? Okay, let's do it. We're going to I'm sure none of our listeners need to be told what's been going on with the North Koreans and Sony. And so I'm going to skip over the introduction and go straight to the question, which is, was Sony correct on a financial level or on a marketing level or on any other level to decide to pull this film and to not release it in theaters? Don't forget, Felix, that Sony doesn't admit that's what they did. They're saying that it was the theater houses that didn't want to show the film, and they were just going along with it. Well, no, so what happened, and, and it's, you know, I mean, this is, this is PR 101. If you want to pull the film, first of all, you phone up your distributors, and you say, 
uh, you, you know what? It's pretty risky to 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 show this film, isn't it? And they go, yeah, I'd say it's pretty risky. And they go, well, you know, maybe you might want to think about pulling it. And they go, oh, yeah. And then by sheer coincidence, all four major distributors in the country all managed to release a press release saying that they're, going to pull, they're not going to show the film within about five minutes of each other. And then ten minutes after that, Sony goes oh, well, you know what? If these guys aren't showing it, there's really no point. Right. And the question, I guess, is immediately, like, why was it those the distributors that they had to get, in, like, implicated in the risk, in, involved in the risk, instead of the larger mo- movie industry? I mean, it seems like the... I mean, I've talked to security experts about the, these hackers and these hacks, and they make it very clear that it's not just Sony that's at risk for this. So it's a really a movie industry-wide problem. Well, no, I mean, it's an industry-wide problem. I mean, if you can hack a movie, if you can hack any movie company, yeah. you can hack any company. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the FBI says about 90% of companies uh, wouldn't be able to withstand this sort of an attack. And that's not because it was such a sophisticated attack. It's because most companies' cybersecurity is just not that great. I, I actually think that Sony might have made the right move financially as much as it pains me as just like a red-blooded American to, you know, that they gave in. Um, One thing to remember is that this movie isn't supposed to be very good. It's getting like a 54 on Rotten Tomatoes. and uh, From eight people who've seen it. Well, we'll go on the best. It's the information we got, right? (laughs) But no, I mean, I've Um, seen the trailer and it really does look like a very, very bad movie. movie. And like, yeah, I think the controversy might get it. I mean, maybe it would carry it to a big opening weekend, but it might not. Um, It's hard to say what kind of legs this actually would have had as a film. And then beyond that, I think that the, the... it just at some point Sony has to be sitting there saying, "What else can these hacker do to do hackers do to us, and for how long? How long can they make us suffer?" And I think it's telling that you know there was a theater in Dallas that was going to show Team America: World Police as sort of a substitute, and then Paramount basically said, "No, no, 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 no. We don't want to get dragged into right, this because, either because because it's it, there's no upside to Paramount to you know to doing that, and what Sony did." was, as you say, I mean, rational, if the movie wasn't going to make a huge amount of money anyway, um, there was a massive reputational risk associated with showing the movie. You know, it's tail risk here. And we deal with tail risk a lot on this show. There was probably a 99% chance that if the movie had opened on Christmas Day, then nothing untoward would have happened. Yeah. But the tail, that 1% tail, was so fat and so scary that... Sometimes it's rational to say, well, f- because that is such a fat, scary tail risk, we're not going to show the movie. Yeah, I think it's even beyond. I mean, the, the chances of North Korea pulling a full-on Red Dawn here seem a little bit... Uh, no, but that's uh, but, not what we're talking but, about. North but, Korea yeah. has sponsored yeah. major acts of real-world ter- terrorism in the past. They've yeah. blown up airliners. You know, they can cause serious chaos. I think it's even, to me, I've actually seen that, I, I think it's even just... How long is North? How long are, are we going to be dogged by hackers? Even if we actually go forth and show this movie, that's what I imagine they have to be thinking. George Clooney tried to put a petition out trying to get everyone in Hollywood to support Sony showing the movie, and no one would sign the petition, not one person, <laughs> because Hollywood is not in the business of taking actual political stands. They're commercial organizations who only really care about the bottom line, and that is how capitalism works. Yep. And so the question I have for you, Kathy, is. This idea that there are going to be devastating consequences from this and that it's, a, it's an absolutely world-changing precedent to set and that because this hack was so obviously successful, we're going to see many, many more of these going forward. So is this a rational thing to believe? Absolutely. Um, 
I don't actually really care about the movie. I mean, I think we all agree on that. Um, it might have been the like in terms of economics, the right thing for Sony to do. But in any case, it's exposing something that was already true, but we just didn't really acknowledge before, which is that we're all susceptible to hacking. And by the way, like... I mean, even technology companies. We saw Snapchat yes. emails. J.P. Morgan, you know, released this week. And Sony is nominally a technology <laughs> company. More, yeah. I would even argue. I mean, but Sony yeah. had yeah. was known for having weak yeah. cybersecurity. It, it, it was known for having like a really yeah. bad information security setup. But while that makes it easier to hack, everyone is still hackable. Well, everyone. That's my point. You can't actually make it unhackable. You cannot. And there's lots of reasons for that. But the most dumb reason is because at the end of the day, there will be people who need to have high security clearance and those people make mistakes. There's like, it's just going to be true. Not all of them put all of the passwords in a file called password. (laughs) You can do your thing and make it a little harder, but it's just a fact. So the question of whether, you know, the question of whether this is a purely economic thing. I mean, let let me just say another thing. My husband being Dutch um, was really shocked and dismayed by the torture report this week. And I I was like, I'm not that shocked or dismayed. I'm not shocked by it. Of course, I'm dismayed by it. But what makes you so shocked? And he said to me, well, growing up, my image of America was what came through the movies. So, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is that Hollywood is not just a business, but it's also plays a huge role in like our image to other people in other countries. And that's the thing that we have to start thinking about. That famous American corporation, Sony, is just (laughs) backing down in the face of North Korea. I think this is actually important, though, that that the decision to pull the movie was almost certainly made in Tokyo, not in Los Angeles. That's a good point. And, you know, they have their own issues with the North Koreans who are much closer to Japan than they are to the United States. Um, On which note, talking about international geopolitics, we are going to move on very quickly because there are four topics this week. Yes. To Cuba. Yes. And again, we all know what's happened in Cuba, so we're not we're not going to rehearse the events of last week. But Jordan, what does this mean in terms of money? Are, is there a money angle here? Yeah, there is. So I just I want to actually give just a little bit of background. Um, I, I've been to Cuba for one week of my life only, but like which is more than most Americans. And when you go there, it's it's hard. I don't think most people realize how bad the embargo has been and how rough on the country it's been until you see the state of Havana and just the degree to which parts of it look bombed out. That there are just crumbling buildings in the parts that haven't been preserved for tourists, that there are just facades where everything behind it is gone. It's physically evident what U.S. policy has done to this country. There are money angles. Obviously, there's the bit about, you know, we can now bring in $100 with cigars and rum if you really want to. To me, the thing that's really good to see is they're changing the remittance rule. Um, they're upping it to $2,000 per quarter, I think, from $500 per quarter, um, which, is a, which is a significant um, boost for a Cuban family. So, remittance means money you You're sending send? back, yeah, to a person in Cuba, to a family member in Cuba. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this will have some immediate impact on lives in this country. And of course, it does potentially, with some co- cooperation from Congress, set the stage for a full-on lifting of the embargo. And at that point, you're going to see a flood of money into the country. Or, or I think you're already talking about there are a lot of people who would like to kind of recreate the old Cuba of gambling lore of, you know, kind of mobsters and whatnot and really make it a destination. And so, yeah, there is a money angle here, I think. And not to mention that, like, until now, banks have not been – American banks have not been allowed to do business there. So the, there's a Or any angle. bank which does business in America it, yeah. has not been allowed to do business right, there, which right. is basically all banks. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, would, I would say, like, even beyond the money thing, there's just, like, a human compassion level where you just want to, like, let people live. And it's been hard on those people in Cuba. So 
I mean, I'm not the American here, so tell me, Jordan, how compassionate is the U.S. Congress? Are they actually going to lift the embargo? Because this requires an act of Congress, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so Marco Rubio of Florida, he's Cuban-American senator uh, from Florida, um, is is already like fighting with the Pope over this. Like the Pope helped negotiate this, and basically Rubio was saying, "I would have liked to." Who's Catholic would have was. I wish the Pope had been on the side of democracy and freedom or something. So, I don't think this is going to be an easy fight long term. It's not. We're not there. I mean, politics are are moving in the, that direction, and the tide has turned. But I don't think it's going to happen. I guess it wouldn't happen this Congress. This is an example where I actually want disruptive technology involved, where like they figure they look, they want, I want them to game the embargo, like look and figure out whether Square can make it over there. So you can, <laughs> you can still use credit cards and well, give up. Part of the deal was um, an increase in bandwidth to Cuba, basically that Cuba's allowing a lot more internet freedom than it has done up until now. So I'm sure all of the techno-utopians have already de- decided that thanks to Bitcoin, the Cuban economy is going ah, to start booming. Oh my god, if Bitcoin made Cuba, if this worked with Bitcoin, I would be a Bitcoin lover. Yeah, I, it is. The thing is, if you talk to people there, or when you counter, you realize quickly, there's a really big black market. So Bitcoin could be pretty helpful for a lot of the people who are uh, trying to get things just like everyday goods, kind of uh, I guess, out of the away from the gaze of the government. So, I think now I'm exhausted. I, I, I can't remember. I mean, in fact, this Let's is the first time <laughs> that, we've, that we've ever managed to squeeze four topics in. I feel, I feel I need some cigars. I need a big glass of Cuban rum. Mm. I feel that maybe our special Christmas issue should be done from Havana. Ooh. How about I that? I would love to do that. Um, anyway, let's... Move. Let's bring this thing towards the finish line here with some numbers. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. All Kathy's right. going first. Twenty-seven million. Nice number. Thank you. Um, that's how much Larry Summers um, just made. No. Yeah. From what? The IPO of Lending Club. I miss. Do you remember what Lending Club is? I, yeah. I, I'm a fan of Lending Club. Yeah. I think Lending Club is a good company, but I and I knew that Larry was on the board. I didn't realize they'd given him that much stuff. He had a million shares. So, I mean, it might have been a little bit outdated, but we could see it. We look at the market, see whether it's, uh, it's still at 27 cents. I um, should have drawn the... Uh, actually, I was never offered a board seat at Lending Club. That's that's why, where... Still should have joined. So my thing about Lending Club um, is that and it, it and places like Zest Finance, um, similar types of things, are they have a regulation risk. They have real regulatory risk because what they're basically doing is creating credit scores and like labeling people with credit scores for their matchmaking platform of between lenders and borrowers. And it is essentially bypassing the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, which talked about how you can't use race or you can't use this, or you can't use that, and basically lays out what a credit score should be made of. And they're not actually in violation of that because they're not directly lending money to people, but they're labeling people with that. And I'm just, I think that... But they're not like, using race. I mean, they're not directly you have to be able race. to underwrite people, right? I mean, the, the lending acts don't stop the fact that you have to be able to differentiate between people in order to do underwriting. Totally, totally. So what what, what regulation do you think could endanger Lending Club here? Uh, look, the Fair Credit Act also explains that you have to be able to describe exactly what you're doing and uh, what you're using as evidence for the credit score. I mean, there's all sorts of... Re- Felix, this could be a topic for a different day, which okay. I'd love. But I just want to say that in the civil rights legislation era, we decided that credit scoring should be fair the fairness of it was actually just as important as whether it was correct. Right now, it's very capitalist. It's very, like, disruptive. 
And the whole thing is to be as accurate as possible. But in the past, we were like, actually, it's important to be fair. And so those two things are going to play out. In any case, we will cover this topic in depth. Sounds in like some, this, it sounds like this is an episode. In some other, in some future episode oh. of Slate Money, your weekly guide to the business and finance news, I'm going to come in with my number, which is 13, which is a little bit related to what um, Kathy was talking about about hackability, but it's the flip side of that. 13 is the number of hours that this poor couple spent in their car in New Zealand last week. Um, they bought a brand new Mazda. I think they were on the elderly side and they got into their Mazda and the car doors locked mm. automatically and they realized they didn't have the little remote control key thing. And the guy who'd sold them their Mazda had explained that everything was done with this transponder and that nothing really worked without the transponder. And so they couldn't work out how to get out of their car because the cars, the car doors had locked. And so they tried honking the horn, but it was Guy Fawkes night. It was, there was lots of fireworks going Ugh. on, so no one heard the horn. And they tried, they found like a crowbar and they tried to smash the windows, but they weren't very strong and they couldn't smash the windows and the, and the windows were reinforced. And eventually, when the neighbors found them at a quarter to eight the following morning, um, the wife had passed out unconscious and oh. the and she had to spend like three days in hospital and the, and the parent and, and the emergency responders were saying that half an hour more and they could have died oh that's oh, awful wow. it's a very very bad story now the punchline is that the way to get out of the car was to use the door handles no yes are you serious that all he needed to do all they needed to do was just open the door from the inside with the door handles but they had been told they have, they were so baffled by modern technology and this whole idea that we just don't understand how the world works anymore and we and there's all these sophisticated computers running and everything and we have to press the right button and I don't know how things work had just stopped them from just thinking it's I could awful. just open I, from the door I, yeah I think that also just speaks to the power of suggestion right they just you're saying they were told early on that nothing's going to work without this transponder right. and so when they didn't have the transponder there of course nothing's going to work now they didn't it's oh that's so sad uh, well my number's not that try I, I think my number's <laughs> actually sort of a happy in some respects a happy number depends who you are um, it is 37,924 that is the number of first-year law students starting school this year. It is the lowest number since 1973. Yay! <laughs> Fewer lawyers! <laughs> it is. Um, and back then, there were, I think, I'm, I'm kind of off the top of my head, it's about tw they had, there were about 150 law schools back then. Uh, there are 204 now. So it's, uh, I, I've been arguing with a bunch of people. I, I think some schools are just going to end up having to close because uh, some are being hit uh, more terribly by uh, the enrollment decline than others. It, it's looking pretty rough for the Legal Academy mm. at the moment. But yes, fewer lawyers for the moment. Law school, as you, as anyone who's been reading David Siegel in the New York Times knows, is, is a horrible racket. And if we have fewer of them, that's a good thing. So, so I'm we, gonna we managed to good... make that number tragic as well. I just want to throw that yeah, in. Yeah, no, this is a good number. <laughs> this is a positive number. Be happy that there are fewer <laughs> gullible people getting ripped off by law schools. There are only maybe... 10 law schools in America that it's worth going to. The rest of it... I, I disagree it. with that, but, but it's a, that's an argument that's for another, another episode. Thing. In any case, that is it. We have come to the end of our quadraphenic edition wow. of Slate's Money. Thank you for listening to us. 
do subscribe to the show. You can find us if you search for Sleep Money in the iTunes store. Leave us a review. Email us always at sleepmoney at sleep.com. The producer for Sleep Money this week was Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Sleep's podcast is Andy Bowers. For Cathy O'Neill and Gordon Weissman, I'm Felix. No wrapping required. Give the gift of Slate Plus to another Slate fan in your life, and they'll receive all the benefits of membership. Bonus podcast segments, single-page articles, behind-the-scenes content, audio versions of your favorite articles, and so much more. Give Slate Plus today. Visit slate.com slash give plus. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.